I hope you don't mind that I took my coat off. We're supposed to dress representatively, the program book says. But I'm getting warm. All right. Now, obviously, John loved the ones to whom he wrote this letter. That is without question. And his love and concern for the church of the last hour, remember he identifies that church and the historical context of the last hour. His love and concern for the church of the last hour is vividly apparent all the way through. Because he says, he writes uh, in, as he says in chapter one, verse four, to affirm and to encourage so that our joy may be complete. So that you may not sin, chapter 2, verse 1. Because your sins are forgiven, chapter 2, verse 12. Because you know him who is from the beginning, chapter 2, verse 13. Because you have overcome the evil one, also Chapter 2, verse 13. Because you know the Father, also verse 13. And because you are strong, chapter 2, verse 14. That's why he writes. And then he writes also to warn this church that he loves. Chapter 2, verse 26. About those who are trying to deceive you. Watch out, he says, be careful. And then lastly, he writes to assure the, the church and to give, a, give confidence in the future, no matter what it may hold. Now we talked a little bit about the events that opened the 21st century. And you know, things are quite scary today, aren't they, in the world, if you're paying attention. And so he writes to give us assurance and confidence. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Remember I said pay attention to every single word because it helps you understand what the, what the writer is saying. Remember when you study the Bible, if, whether you're studying it for preaching or for your own devotional life, you chew on it like a dog chews on a bone by asking questions. The first question is what is the writer saying? And the second one is, what does he mean by what he says? And then the third question is, how is that to be applied to me, to my life? You start with those three. 
questions. Anyway, this grandfatherly man takes his little children by the hand, as it were, on a journey of preparation for the mission, the demands of the mission that is required by the last hour. And so what we're doing this morning is by faith, joining our hands with John and with each other and see where the journey takes us. I had no idea when I was 16, 17 years old where the journey was going to take me. When the Lord found me, I'm not going to tell you that whole story, and called me into the ministry, I literally rolled on the ground with laughter. You know, I said, Lord, you have got to be kidding. Because I was an introvert. I graduated from high school by the skin of my teeth, one half grade above the average necessary to graduate. I didn't even attend my high school graduation. I was so glad to be out of there. I was going to be a commercial artist, but the Lord got a hold of me and changed my life. And then when he told me, you know, revealed to me that he was, was calling in, me into the ministry, I could not believe it. To get up in front of a group of people and preach, you have got to be kidding God, you goofed. I had no idea what my journey was going to be like. Ended up a professor in, the, in our seminary. Unbelievable. By the way, uh, I, I never thought I'd write another book, but I'm writing one. In fact, the manuscript is finished. I brought it along with me to give to Dr. Ron Dupree. He's going to read it and critique it for me. The title of it, the title is The Road I Travel. I had a different title, but uh, Israel Ramos, you know who Pastor Ramos is? He gave me the title for my, for my book. The Road I Travel. Subtitle, Spirituality an Adventist perspective. So, you know, I, had not, I hadn't intended to write another book, but the Lord laid it on me. So that's what I've been doing the last two winters. Anyway, just as at the time that John wrote, the church of today, to repeat something I said earlier, is threatened by forces that would destroy it at the very time that its clear and courageous witness is most needed in the world that God so loved. The church of the last hour is facing popular philosophies that threaten its very life and witness. I know what I'm talking about because I could tell you stories of my former church the Lutheran Church, and what's happened in that denomination. 
Just briefly, they have abandoned sola scriptura and have scuttled the Reformation. So the church of the last hour, that's you and me, is facing philosophies that threaten its very life and existence. And that's why we need to be clear about the biblical message and certain about our mission. And before we go any further, we need to observe that this apostle of love does not begin his letter by talking about love. Everybody wants to talk about love today. I have heard, believe it or not, Seventh-day Adventists say to me as a preacher, don't preach doctrine, tell us about Jesus. Now there's certainly nothing wrong with preaching Jesus, right? But how can you do that without preaching truth? He mentions love briefly four times in chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. But not until chapter 3 does he talk about love, love more fully. And we'll get into that later. Instead of beginning his letter by talking about love, he begins by talking about walking in darkness as opposed to walking in the light. He, he begins by talking about sin, remember, which is the basic human problem. And he begins by talking about not practicing the truth. He begins by talking about deceiving ourselves about confessing sins, about being cleansed of unrighteousness, and even about making God a liar. So look at chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. And remember, I'm using the English Standard Version. Listen carefully. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If, by the way, I have been threatening for years to preach a series of sermons on the Bible ifs. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, and by the way, I'm going to preach another series on Bible buts. <laughs> but if there's, they happen together, a but and an if. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We're on the same page. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from some sin, all sin. 
if, there's another if, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If, there's another one, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is that as far as it goes? No. A lot of people end it right there. And to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. If, there's uh, another one, we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. You know, we're saying we don't believe what you're telling us, God. And his word is not in us. Now, how do we hear those five verses in the context of the last hour? And in relationship to fulfilling the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. How do we hear them? The first thing that John makes clear is that the message that he is communicating did not originate with himself. It's not something he made up. It's not human philosophy. It didn't originate with any other human being. It was given by the Father and the Son. And that message, and none other, is what John heard and what he passes on to his little children, the believers that he loved. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Light illuminates. What would happen if we turned these lights off? Doors closed. We couldn't see. Stumbled all over each other in these chairs, trying to get out of here. Light illuminates. It shows the way makes things clear. It exposes things for what they are. It reveals falsehood. Darkness, on the other hand, obscures, hides the truth. Now, spiritually speaking, people prefer darkness to light. Now, if you are like me, and I suspect that you are, you have had, or are having, or will have, that same kind of struggle. Now, preferring darkness, you'd rather be ignorant of what God says than face it, because if you face it, you've got to deal with it. You've got to do something about it. He says in his Gospel, chapter 3, beginning with verse 19, John says, and this is the judgment. The light has come. Now, you could just stop there and think about that for a while. 
You know, I, like I said earlier, don't be in a hurry when you read the Bible. Don't hesitate to pause and think about what you just read. Now, read it again. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? He answers. Because their deeds were evil. That's why they hate the light. They don't want to be exposed. For everyone that does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why not? And he answers, lest his deeds be exposed. Now, everyone knows the truth of what John has just said. You know it. I know it. We don't have to argue about that. We know the truth here. We know what he means. We know what he says. We know what he means. The problem is, what do we do about it? Now, let me ask you, what is the mission demand for the church of the last hour, according to these five verses of First John, first chapter? It is, first of all, not to walk in spiritual darkness. We cannot fulfill that mission if we're walking in spiritual darkness. It is instead to practice the truth. Not just know it, but practice it. Live it. The truth that God has revealed in his word. To claim fellowship with Jesus while walking in darkness, John says, is to deliberately mislead and deceive. Do you get that? It's hypocrisy. Pretending to be something that one is not. Not just giving lip service to the truth, but to live it. Put it into everyday practice. No matter what the personal consequences might be. Or cost. And by the way, that's part of the story that I'm telling in the book that I just finished. The road I travel. You know, you hear a lot of preaching out there today that tells you, accept Jesus and your life will be just peachy. You'll have a lot of money. You'll have a lot of joy. All of your inner battles will be over. The rest of, the li the rest of your life is going to be, you know, wonderful. Now, is that true or not? There is truth to it, isn't there? There certainly was truth to it for me. 
But if that's all that the message consists of, it's a false message. Is that true? Because Jesus not only says, come unto me, ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He also says, okay, you came to me, now I'm sending you into the world. I'm sending you out to, go, to do battle with the devil. I'm sending you out to participate in the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness because you have to live for me and bear witness of me in the world that lies in the power of the evil one. Remember that. And that is precisely why we need one another. We need the fellowship of the body of Christ. We need each other's prayers and encouragement and counsel and exhortation and even rebuke once in a while. If, you, if you, you're going in the wrong direction and your friend who loves you, you know, if, if he's a real friend or if she's a real friend, she'll say, hey, uh-uh, I won't let you do that. You're off the road. You're getting off the way. That's why we need the church. The fellowship of believers. That's what it means to love one another with a Christ-like love. Understanding the nature of the, of the church as one body and understanding the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. Can we truly be in fellowship one with another if we're not on the same page when it comes to both the message and the mission of the church? If the members of the body cannot be trusted and depended upon by each other, how can we be in fellowship? Jesus said, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. He was talking to his disciples. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine. Before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. Yes, he said it. He said good works. I get sick and tired of folks, even within our fellowship, you know, that say, oh, that's legalism. That's works righteousness. Bunkum. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about genuineness, genuine fellowship with himself. And he says, if you come to the light, let your light shine. So they can see your good works. And so they can see your good works for the purpose of giving glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, when you and I live faithful lives, who gets the credit? 
Our Heavenly Father gets the credit. He gets the glory, not you and I. That's not why we do this. It's not you and I that are glorified, but our Lord. And by the way, these works that he talks about are good only if they are of the light and not of the darkness. Jesus said to the, to the scribes and Pharisees, who were, by the way, the religious leaders of his day, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That, what kind of darkness? Spiritual, theological, philosophical, ecclesiastical, cultural, moral darkness. That's what he's talking about. But, he says, instead of that, we'll have the light of life. For what purpose? To illuminate, to guide, to direct, to show you the way. And after John talks about walking in the light and practicing the truth as opposed to walking in darkness and not practicing the truth, he talks about sin. Can you imagine? His logic is relentless, in other words. And you follow his logic. It's going to take you, you know, where we might not want to go. You know, it's Because the hypocrisy of claiming to be in fellowship with Jesus while walking in darkness misleads and deceives. It's the worst kind of sinning. To claim to be in fellowship with Jesus and at the same time walking in the darkness is the worst kind of sinning. Why? He says that such hypocrisy and deception will not serve the mission required by the demands of the last hour. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil and is doing the devil's work. Well, let that sink in. That's pretty serious. And in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, what sin? Well, look at the context. He tells you what sin he's talking about. Saying one thing and doing another. That's sin. Living a lie. That's sin. Walking in spiritual darkness. That's sin. Not practicing the truth. That's sin. Remember that his focus is on the church of the last hour. And he wants to prepare the church 
to meet the demands of the mission in the last hour. He says, if you, if you practice this kind of sinning, he says, quote, we deceive who? Ourselves. Self-deception is the worst kind of deception. Why? Because if you deceive yourself, you will not hesitate to deceive somebody else. That's why it's the worst kind of deception. And you will try to, you will convince yourself that you represent truth, even though you do not. Self-deception begins with having a sense of the sinfulness of their own nature. They are far from God, he says. Or this is what Ellen White says in 3T, page 361. They are far from God, yet they take great satisfaction in their lives. When their conduct is abhorred by God. This class will ever be at war with the leadings of the Spirit of God. At war with what God is trying to do in one's life. Especially, she says, with reproof. We will not receive reproof. And then she says also in First Testimonies 2.14, she says, these are perilous times for the church. That's what she said way back then. What would she say today if she was alive? I wonder how many adjectives she would add to, the, to perilous. These are perilous times for the church of God and the greatest danger now is that of self-deception. Individuals professing to believe the truth are blind to their own danger. And then 4088, fearful is the power of self-deception on the human mind. What blindness, she says, setting light for darkness and darkness for light. John says that self-deception ends. The end result of self-deception is that the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, John says, say everything is okay with the church, with the message, with, even though it contradicts the Bible. We make him a liar, John says, and his word is not in us. Nothing could be more devastating to the mission of the church of the last hour than this self-deception. That's why we need to be clear with regard to both the message and the mission that God has given to us. No compromise, no deviation, 
no matter what the cost. Well, what must that church do then? Well, he tells us, John tells us, confess, repent, experience the forgiveness of a faithful and just God, and so be cleansed of all unrighteousness. That's the way he starts out his letter, this apostle of love. And so be enabled to fulfill the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. Are we ready? The church entrusted by God with a special mission in that hour of history must first deal with the sins that would hinder it from fulfilling that mission. Because the mission of the church in the last hour does not involve the imposition of God's truth upon others, but the submission of the church to God's truth for the sake of others. You see the difference? And in that is to be found an imitation of Christ that comes the closest to the real thing. Now, Ellen White says that the Bible points to God as its author. This is great controversy. Page five of the introduction. The Bible points to God as its author, she says, yet it was written by human hands. And in the varied style of its different books, it presents the characteristics of the writers. God is the author of the scripture, but it was written by several writers. And when it comes to the New Testament, there were eight of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, Jude, and James. The three major contributors to the New Testament were Luke, Paul, and John. John played a major role in the life of the early church. In fact, he was one of the first disciples that was chosen by Jesus. The story about that is, is found in the fourth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And of all of the apostles, John served the Lord the longest. He was the, he was the one that the Lord chose as he writes in the book of Revelation to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He, Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Sending his angel from where? From the heavenly sanctuary. To the servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. And we've already alluded to the fact that he wrote 
the most famous words in the in the New Testament, John three sixteen. And we've already mentioned that he has been referred to throughout the Christian church, the history of the church, as the apostle of love. He wrote more about love than any other New Testament writer. And though he wrote a lot about God's love for the world and for his church and about believers' love for one another, his major emphasis is on the believer's love for Christ. And in this letter, his focus is not on the world that lies in the power of the evil one, but on God's people, the church. He refers to them as little children and also beloved. And more precisely, his focus is on the church of the last hour, for which he says, as I said earlier, that it is crucial for that church to be able to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Why? Because it is that church that has to understand and fulfill the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. And it is that church that has to prepare, be prepared to meet those demands. And so he devotes this whole letter, following the first three verses, to that preparation. And the church of today needs to listen to 1 John. Because it is the church of the last hour, you, me, and is threatened by forces that would sabotage and subvert it at the very time that its clear and courageous witness is needed. <coughs> now, as I already said, he doesn't start out by talking about love, and that might be disturbing to some people, because he is, after all, the apostle of love. But why doesn't he start out by talking about love? Why does he talk about all these other things that we would categorize as negatives? Because, and listen carefully, love must never be distorted by the church of the last hour to the point that it subverts its passion for truth. Did you hear me? Love must never be distorted by the church of the last hour to the point that it subverts its passion for truth. And when he does talk about love, as he will later, he makes unambiguous statements. That's one of the reasons I like John. He's not ambiguous. The love he talks about is in a far different context than that of the fuzzy idea of love that is popular in Christianity today across the board. 
he talks about it in the context, as you will notice as you, if you read carefully. He talks about love in the context of righteousness. Not just feeling good and having a great time. And the Apostle Paul underscores this when he wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, following when he said, the coming of the lawless one, or the coming of the Antichrist, the lawless one, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. We quoted this earlier. Because they refused to love the truth. And so be saved. Instead, he starts the letter with a call to the church of the last hour to practice the truth. Not to walk in spiritual darkness, to walk in the light as he is in the light. He starts with a call to practice the truth that God has revealed in his word. I am the light of the world, Jesus said, remember. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, will refuse to walk in darkness. And he begins with a call to confess, to repent, and to experience the forgiveness of a faithful and just God. And so be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so be prepared, enabled, empowered to fulfill the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. <coughs> so the church entrusted by God with a special mission in that time of history has to first deal with the sins that would hinder it from fulfilling its mission. What comes next then before he starts to talk about love? Well, what comes next is a clear exposition. What time are we through? Quarter to? A clear exposition as how the, the confessing believer can know, be certain, that he or she is in a saving relationship with God. How can we be certain that we are in him? as he says in chapter 2, verse 5. Why is that important? He says, so that we do not deceive ourselves. He makes it unambiguously clear that there is specific evidence of the reality of that relationship in one's life. This is precisely why, dear friends, you may wonder why, you know, we give Bible studies to people, we have evangelistic meetings, we give appeals, people come forward, we, we, then we, we, we teach them to, to understand what's happened to them and the gospel, the message of the Bible, before we baptize. Seventh-day Adventists do not baptize quick 
I don't know if I should say this. I try to cover the mic. <laughs> but my personal conviction is that evangelists should not baptize anybody. Evangelists should get decisions from people. And then the local church, the pastor and the local church begins to take over the nurturing process and teach them to understand what has happened to them, what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and a member of the remnant church of God. Why? Because God has expectations of people who are born again, as John will tell us. In other words, God expects that there be, that there be some evidence of transformation of life. And the church, which is his body, has the right to expect at least some evidence of transformation before we baptize somebody. The reason for that is baptism for us is not magic. Baptism is a symbol of what has already happened. And we, we, we look for evidence that can be observed not only by the members of the body, but by the world. Otherwise, the, the testimony, the witness is not credible. You know, the, the, you know, the world will say, aha, I knew it all along. The whole Christian message is a fake because you baptize people, you know, that, you know, look at the way they live. The world says that. We don't have to say that. The world says that. They can see. So, dare I use the word standards? We do have some standards as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And by the way, that is one of the things that makes our church attractive to a lot of people. Now look at chapter two, the first six verses. He doesn't leave us in the dark about this crucial matter. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way 
in which he walked. And how did Jesus walk? How did he walk? Disobediently or obediently? No, Jesus walked a life of obedience to his Father's will. And I, you know, I hear people say, evangelicals, people that I know, and we'll allude to that later too. That's not possible. You'll always be a sinner. You'll always live a disobedient life. I tell them, read First John. So, so there's no misunderstanding. So that he cannot be accused of legalism and works righteousness. Paul prefaces his uncompromising statement of truth by making it absolutely clear that he understands the gospel. He has just said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, that's God's grace, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He takes it a step further. Not just forgive. You know, God doesn't just want to forgive us. He wants to clean us up from the inside out. He wants to remake us. He wants to transform us into Christ-likeness. That's as much a part of the gospel as is the message of forgiveness. John underlines the truth often overlooked in contemporary Christianity that sin is not the determining or ruling force in the believer's life. You know, when, the, when a person says to me like that one did that I just quoted a minute ago, when they say to me, you know, you'll always be a sinner, you'll always be a disobedient and so on. They're telling me that sin is the ruling force in my life. No, it's not. Not if I'm a born-again believer. I may have a problem with some things once in a while, but it's not the dominating, ruling force in my life or in yours. You know? People say we will always be sinners and we'll always commit sin as though sin was the ruling force. As though the gospel of grace has no power to transform a person's life. Tell that person to read 1 John. It's right there in the New Testament. For John, 
righteousness is the determining ruling force in the born-again believer's life, not sin. And we have to learn to think that way about the faith we confess. If, if we're going to live that way. And here the word of God makes it clear that the atmosphere in which the Christian believer lives <coughs> is that of righteousness, not of sin. <coughs> Excuse me. A born-again believer lives in the atmosphere of righteousness, not the atmosphere of sin. But then John adds, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Thank God. And so he says, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Truth is the antidote for sin. And Jesus said, John records in his gospel, the eighth chapter, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from everything that would hinder you from living a righteous life. The power of sin, the power of the devil, and the power of the flesh. That's what you and I are free from. We're not free to live any way we choose. Or free to live in sin. We're free from something in order to be free for something, a righteous life. You believe what I'm saying? Is this truth? Is this straight talk? See, this is one thing that I believe about your generation. I'm talking to the, the younger ones here now. And it's based on my experience. I believe that you young people, you want to hear straight talk. You don't want to be talked down to. You want to be taken seriously. And what you need and what you like to hear is straight talk. So that's what I'm doing. I'm giving you straight talk. And I hope you can recognize the truth of it. Because if you do, It will exercise a transforming power in the way you think and the way you live. Now, the Apostle John has made us aware of two major theological issues faced by the last hour church. I'll just introduce them and then we'll talk about them this afternoon. <clears throat> Two issues that impinge on our understanding of our message and mission. 
On the one hand, the issue is the rejection of the biblical concept of human sin. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the biblical position. And on the other hand, the issue that we face is the rejection of the biblical concept of a victory over the power of sin to dominate and control human life. And uh, at the first hour this afternoon, I want to tell you a personal story about how those things became reality in my experience as part of the process of transitioning from the Lutheran to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Okay, our time is up. And I'll see you this afternoon at what time? 2.30. Correct. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.